0: Welcome to An American Breakthrough, a podcast from the United States Conference of Mayors. I'm your host, Greg Fisher, Mayor of Louisville, and the President of the United States Conference of Mayors. As a mayor, nothing is more critical than ensuring the most pressing issues facing your city are being seen, valued, and acted upon in a meaningful way. Though not in person this year, last week's 89th Winter Meeting provided an important reminder that mayors are acting urgently in their own cities to meet the needs of their residents. It also provided hope that mayors now have willing partners in the federal government who see and value what's happening at the local level and will act in partnership with us to create meaningful change. There's a lot that remains ahead of us. COVID-19 continues to ravage our communities and with it growing concerns about new variants of the virus and what that could mean in the coming months. Direct relief to state and local governments is still desperately needed to help cities preserve critical jobs and drive economic recovery. A national vaccination program is also needed to help contain the spread of the virus so that people can get back to work and our children can resume learning in person without fear and uncertainty. We still need to fight climate change. We have to reduce gun violence and it's beyond time to create more equitable outcomes for more residents. Mayors are addressing these issues head on and we're encouraged that we now have the attention and support of our nation's most senior officials in the federal government. They're not only listening, but during our winter meeting last week, they directly weighed in on our residents' needs and how the federal government can partner with mayors to meet those needs. In this episode, we're looking back at our 89th winter meeting, and you'll hear from many of the leaders who have helped to restore my confidence in the belief that we can, and soon will solve the challenges that stand before us on our way to this American breakthrough. First up, our Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer who shared their commitment to supporting mayors and the importance of delivering direct financial aid to cities through President Biden's American Rescue Plan. Direct aid to cities remains a key priority and it's great to have leaders in Congress who share this commitment.
1: In these challenging times, mayors witness every day the devastating impact that COVID-19 has had on our nation. And since day one, you have led the way to protect and honor our frontline heroes, our health care workers, police and fire, first responders, transportation, sanitation, food workers, and our teachers, our teachers, our teachers. Last year, with your help, the House passed a bipartisan relief package, which is a down payment on our future action. Together with your input and advocacy, we will pass President Biden's emergency coronavirus relief package, which delivers big, bold, and urgent action. Among other key priorities, this package will provide strong state and direct local government support to ensure that local government can keep job workers on the job, keep services running, and can equitably and immediately distribute the vaccine.
2: Now I want to thank all of you for your incredible leadership, serving our communities in a most difficult year. You're at the front lines against this awful pandemic. You're the public servants who practically carry the weight of the nation and certainly your cities on your shoulders. And I know this, as a new administration begins and as I begin my time as Senate Majority Leader, I will make it my mission to give our struggling communities and our cities, no matter where they are, the help they need to get through these hard times. That's why one of the very first things the new Senate will do is work with the Biden administration on another round of COVID relief. We passed, as you know, a nearly $1 trillion package a month ago, one that provided billions in expanded unemployment, direct benefits for the families, help for small business, help for vaccine distribution, and more. But our work is far from done. In the next COVID bill, we will work to expand payments to working and middle-class families to $2,000 per person. We will work with the Biden administration to speed up vaccine distribution so everyone gets it free and our cities and our states will get the money they need to help distribute it quickly, but we will need your leadership to get it done. And let me be clear about one thing. The Senate Democratic Majority will make sure the next COVID package will include aid for the states, but direct aid as well to local and municipal governments. Help for you who have had to make the just so difficult budgetary choices in the face of this unprecedented crisis.
0: And then we heard directly from President Joe Biden. In one of his first addresses since becoming our country's 46th president, he restated his commitment to making mayors a critical part of his plans to rebuild the country and urged us to be honest and specific about what we need from the new administration in order to contain this pandemic and build back better.
3: Let me begin by saying You have a partner in the White House, Vice President Harris and me. Partner you can trust, who will listen, who will work to get you what you need. I know how important your job is. When I was Vice President in charge of implementing the Recovery Act, I worked with mayors to take us from crisis to recovery and the road to resurgence. Now as President, I'm going to work with you again in this moment of crisis to contain contain the pandemic and to build our economy back and build it back better. So, as you meet with your teams during the winter meeting, be honest about what you need and how we can help work with you and get it done. I've just released — we've just released our national strategy to beat COVID-19. The plan mounts an aggressive vaccination campaign to meet our goal of administering 100 million shots in the first 100 days. We've already — we've already instructed the Federal Emergency the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, to stand up the first federally-supported community vaccination centers with a goal of 100 centers in the next one, in the next month. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to make vaccines available to your local pharmacies in, by early February. We've tasked the Department of Health and Human Service to expand, expand the pool of medical professionals who can administer the vaccine, put the shot in people's arms. We're expanding testing, which will help your schools and businesses reopen safely and protect the most vulnerable among us. We have also formalized the Health Equity Task Force to ensure that equity is at the core of everything we do, both in urban and rural communities alike. At the same time, we need to work together to slow the spread of COVID. In the next few months, masks, not vaccinations, are the single best defense that we have against COVID-19. Medical experts say that by wearing masks, by wearing masks from now until April, we will save more than 50,000 lives, 50,000 lives. We're asking the American people to mask up for the first 100 days. I've issued an executive order requiring masks on federal property and interstate travel like trains, planes and buses. I hope we can work together to require masks, help with you, and you can require masks in your cities and social distancing. I also laid out a two step economic plan to rescue and recover. What will we be working on together? The first step is the American Rescue Plan. It includes direct cash payments, extended unemployment insurance, rent relief, food assistance, and aid to small businesses. It also includes $350 billion for state and local governments to keep educators, first responders, cops, firefighters, et cetera, on the job. And you'll have a greater flexibility to use the funding to meet what other needs you have. And we know you have to balance your budgets. We know the strain on you. It's real. This needs to be done.
0: Next up, let's turn to the dastardly virus itself and the latest on the health impacts of COVID-19. I want to share excerpts from our panel discussion with Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Vivek Murthy about the importance of mayors listening in earnest to residents' concern about the COVID-19 vaccine and respecting those concerns. Both doctors have found that that's the best way to begin building the kind of community trust needed to ensure equitable distribution of the vaccine.
4: The one thing that I have learned uh, over the last several months now in addressing the concern of people of color of getting vaccinated is you need to respect their reluctance. Uh, You can't say, why are you reluctant? You're, you know, you're misinformed, et cetera. You've got to respect the fact that as was articulated by Mayor de Blasio, there is a history that's just not going to go away. So once you respect it, Then go through, and you go through a couple of easy steps. What is it that you're concerned about? And there are two or three things, and and they're just repetitive. One, did you think we went too fast, so it was reckless speed? Why was it so fast? I mean, you have a vaccine that 11 months after the virus was discovered, you're already vaccinating people. That's reckless. No, it's not. It is explained totally by the exquisite advances in the science of vaccine platform technology to allow us to do things in months that otherwise would have taken years. In addition, the enormous investment that was made by the government to take chances of doing things in parallel, as opposed to one after the other, of buying vaccine before you even know that it actually worked. So that explains the speed. The real hooker that people get caught up on, well, wait a minute, you're saying it's safe and you're saying it's effective. Is this the federal government putting something over on us? Is this the company trying to make a lot of money? Let's let's unpack that. Let's take it point by point. The decision of safety and efficacy, the data are examined first and only in the beginning by a totally independent data and safety monitoring board. These are people who are beholden to no one, not beholden to the government, not beholden to the companies. They look at the data, if they think it is worthwhile to start examining for utility, they then let the data be known to the company that presents it to the FDA, and the career scientists look at it. They don't do it alone. They do it together with their own independent body, an advisory committee. And when that advisory committee says, okay, now, to give an emergency use authorization, you can look back and say, guess what? The process was both independent and transparent. And that's what they need to understand in full respect for their reluctance and their hesitancy. And I have found that if you take the time to explain that, that people, many, not everyone will get it uh mayor stoney but a lot of people will get it if if you do that and that's the reason why as as exhausting as it is i've spent a substantial proportion of my week in going out to people and and talking to them about that be they brown and black churches caucuses in the congress to just keep repeating that that the facts and the science and the data are the things that drive us, which gets me right back to what I said about the president when before I got up on the podium, he said, and that's why I came out smiling, he says, we're going to go by the science, the facts, and the evidence. So that's, I think, the road we should take.
5: Sure. Well, I couldn't agree more with uh, with, uh, what Tony and uh, Mayor de Blasio said. Um, really spot on in terms of the information. I mean, this is a a true miracle of science what we've seen the fact we have a vaccine this early but but we've got to listen to people and we've got to um, make sure they have the right information Uh, you know i I just want to say two two quick things here one is i think the, the importance of listening here is so critical because listening is a way of showing that we respect people it's a way of saying i see you uh you matter uh that you have value and many people who are skeptical about the vaccine um you know, are from communities that for a long time felt very disrespected and devalued uh, by society more broadly, by the healthcare profession, by the public health uh, sort of apparatus. And so that's one of the most powerful ways we win back trust is by taking the time to actually listen to people. It's a a mark of respect. But the other point I wanted to make is about the messengers, because as important and powerful as the message is, and we've got to get that message out exactly as Tony put it, although I can never quite uh, put it as eloquently as he does, um, but we also have to think about the messengers and we need a variety of messengers to really reach everyone. Um, there are times when you know, people like uh, Tony and myself and Mayor de Blasio might be the right messenger, uh, but there are many other circumstances where it's uh, local pastors and, and rabbis and local nurses and doctors and other community leaders who are the right voices uh, and right faces uh, to be out there. And so I think part of why I think all of you are so critical as mayors is not only because you're on the front lines, it's not only because you're trusted voices on the ground, it's because you have relationships with so many of these trusted voices. And if we really want to make this vaccination campaign work, if we want to turn this pandemic around, we will need your help and your leadership in, in engaging with and mobilizing those trusted voices in your communities to be out there sharing what, what they know about the vaccine, to be leading by example and getting the vaccine and then posting that video, posting that picture so others can see that they're, uh, again, that they're going first and they're not just asking others to go on faith.
0: One of the highlights for me from this past meeting is that we had a chance to talk with old friends. Our friend and former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, secretary-designate Buttigieg also joined us for a discussion with several mayors and shared how safety will guide President Biden's new vision for the transportation department focusing on equity, climate, and jobs. Here's a bit of that conversation.
6: I wanna lay out very briefly some of the main themes and priorities that are gonna guide uh, the department under President Biden's vision. And uh, it it begins, of course, with with that foundational uh, vision of safety. It's the reason that the Department of Transportation exists and We thought we knew, I think all there was to know about at least the shape of the problems and concerns concerning safety on every dimension that comes under the purview of the department from uh, highway safety to aviation safety uh, to uh, pipelines, uh, hazardous materials, uh, maritime and more. But of course, all of that has taken on a new level of meaning and a new level of urgency. Uh, beginning uh, just about a year ago with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, And we've already seen President Biden issue swiftly uh, and decisively executive orders designed to make sure that the American public is safe from the pandemic, including a lot of things with implications for the transportation sector. Now, uh, we will do everything that we can to make sure we're using federal authorities on interstate travel uh, and everything regulated at the federal level. Recognizing that when it comes to mandates, that does not always extend to some of the things that are under the purview of local or regional authorities, uh, where the imperative will be to make sure we're supporting those authorities, harmonizing standards, uh, and doing whatever else is needed to allow them in turn to use their authorities to keep people safe. But this is about the safety of the traveling public in commuters but it's also about the safety of workers we've seen how transportation workers have been disproportionately exposed and vulnerable uh, in the covid-19 pandem- pandemic and uh, have already been in dialogue uh, with representatives of uh, workers and labor organizations to ensure that we're doing the right thing going forward so that's the foundation on which uh, i hope for us to deliver on three pillars of policy resting on that foundation. And those pillars are equity, climate, and jobs. If we get this right, those three things will interact with each other and be mutually reinforcing. Just consider the way that President Biden always talks about climate as a jobs opportunity and the way that we have all come to recognize that when it comes to equity, economic and racial justice, environmental justice, so much of this can't be separated from what goes on in transportation and in transit. Just quickly, I wanna note that when it comes to climate, uh, transportation sector in the US is the leading contributor of greenhouse gases. But I also think it could be at the forefront of the story of American leadership in tackling the climate challenge. Just consider the opportunity around electric vehicles alone and the president's commitment to deploy half a million charging stations across the country. For that to arrive at the very moment when electric vehicles are beginning to be as or more competitive economically as their internal combustion counterparts could lead to a revolution uh, in the green nature of individual transportation, uh, if we can deliver it properly. But as you know, as mayors, there's so much more to getting around even to getting around on a daily basis, then what goes on for those who can or must use a a privately owned vehicle to get around. We have got to do a better job for reasons of climate, for reasons of safety, and for reasons of equity, of ensuring that other mobility options are available. Uh, And this is one of the many reasons why I believe that a, a mayor's eye view in the Department of Transportation, as we had, of course, under Mayor and Secretary Fox, Uh, uh, just uh, a few years ago, can do a lot of good in thinking about all of the different dimensions of mobility and how they can be federally supported. Uh, When all of our transportation options revolve around human beings, instead of expecting human beings to revolve around vehicles, uh, we can make enormous gains uh, in all of these human goals that the department serves. I also really want to emphasize the stakes for equity, particularly racial justice, that are represented in uh, the different things that this department, I believe, will have an opportunity to work on. Uh, Recent research has done more and more to lay out the consequences of two forms of transportation inequity that have done tremendous harm. One of them is neglect. And I think uh, all of us who have been mayors of racially diverse and uh, economically diverse cities, know the phenomenon of transit or transportation deserts, and as Mayor Hancock uh, put it so aptly, uh, the cutting off from economic opportunity that happens is is a predictor for the economic struggles of, of neighborhoods and whole communities. Other times, transportation investment happened all right, but it happened in the worst possible way, with highways dividing neighborhoods and often destroying what had been thriving middle-class and entrepreneurial Black neighborhoods in particular in the middle of the last century. We have an opportunity in the 2020s, both to reverse prior harms and to be intentional about unlocking economic opportunity in the future.
0: Next, I'd like to share some of John Kerry's remarks about climate and the green economy. He's been named President Biden's special presidential envoy on climate and spoke plainly to us about his expectations for America's mayors to continue leading on climate, because, in his view, our cities are laboratories for fighting climate change on a global level.
7: So let me just share with all of you, uh, you're you're plain talkers. Uh, you know the degree to which you are uh, laboratories of democracy, laboratories of leadership uh, and just plain laboratories. A lot of things happen at, at the front lines of being a mayor that don't you know happen in Washington legislation. In fact, Washington hasn't been doing much in these last years and I think all of us know that. So this is a moment for change. but the, the point I want to make to everybody, my job is to work on the international picture and that is critical because 88 percent of all the emissions that we're suffering from on a global basis come from the rest of the planet not the united states Uh, china is about 30 percent of all the emissions Uh, eu is about 14 percent. russia all you know indonesia these other countries contribute and there are about 20 to 25 major developed nations uh, that are responsible for the crisis that we find ourselves in. You've got about 138 nations that only amount to, you know, they're they're each of them fractions of 1%. So they're not the problem today, though they could be in the future if we don't set the right example. But here's, you know, having had the privilege of negotiating the Paris Agreement, let me just share with all of you quickly the the picture. Uh, Paris set a target of trying to hold the Earth's temperature rise to 2 degrees centigrade or 1.5 if we're able to. And the fact is that we're not doing it today. We're not getting there. Uh, Paris didn't have anything mandatory. It didn't have an ability to enforce and it let every nation write its own plan. And the idea was five years later, we were gonna get together and we're gonna decide how we go to the next layer. That's where we are now. Nine months from now, we have a meeting in Glasgow and it will be the same kind of meeting as Paris where we pull 196 plus countries together all of us desperately needing to raise ambition, which was the the mandate of Paris that after those five years of everybody kind of, you know, trying to do what they can do and agreeing to reduce emissions, we were gonna see where we are. Well, where we are is not great, folks. Even though lots of progress has been made, solar is now cheaper than coal, wind likewise, we're proving new technologies, hydrogen is coming online, there are all kinds of, uh, of uh, new initiatives underway. And there's apparently even possibly some progress in fusion. Uh, I talked to Bill Gates recently. He's telling me that, that they're hopeful that either fission or battery storage or something's gonna be the breakthrough that solves the problem for us. But the bottom line is scientists told us three years ago that we had 12 years to make the decisions that would avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. Three of those years have been blown away now because our nation pulled out of Paris and sent a message to other countries. They didn't have to work that hard. And so we're, we're a little bit behind the eight ball, but you, all of you mayors joined in a remarkable, we're still in movement with Eric and, uh, others, Frank and others working at this you've set an example for what you can do at the local level and sub national level governors in 38 States where we have renewable portfolio laws have all stayed with this. And so we haven't done that badly, frankly, but no country, well, I can't say no, country. There are few countries, you can count them on one hand that are close to perhaps achieving what we set out to do in Paris. But my friends, even if we accomplish everything we set out to do in Paris, we are still going to see a temperature increase up to 3.7 degrees Fahrenheit. That's if we did everything. And, and, and the problem is we're not. me, not Fahrenheit centigrade. And, and, and because we're not, we're actually heading up to somewhere between that 3.7 and 4.1, 4.5. That's beyond catastrophic. The damages that we see happening today from a warming ocean, from the intensity of storms from the floods that we uh, suffer uh, and all the other impacts that's with a with a world that's at 1.2 degrees of warming so more and more people are beginning to realize we've got to hold our thinking about even 1.5 two may not be good enough the bottom line is we have to raise ambition in cities in states in nations All around the world, we have to come together in Glasgow. And Gina is working hard to help us find out exactly what we're going to be able to do as a nation, to set an example, as President uh, Biden said, in his inaugural, not just lead by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. And that means we have to be, we've always been the leader in Paris. We made the difference helping to bring China to the table, pushing countries to raise their uh, goals, and that's precisely what, again, uh, we've already begun to do and we're gonna have to do in the next weeks and months. Nine months from now, we meet there.
0: On January 6th, we saw tremendous disruption in our nation's capital with the insurrectionist march on the Capitol. Mayor Muriel Bowser of Washington DC joined us to share her learnings.
8: I think that the, the kind of unique status of Washington DC was on full display. Uh, and one thing that I know is that most Americans don't, get, don't understand it. Yeah. Uh, so we are uh, not exactly a city, uh, not exactly a state, not exactly a county. Um, and so uh, as mayor, I'm the chief executive, of course, we have a $15 billion budget, I've run the school uh, system. Uh, We have a 13 uh, member council and we're responsible for public safety um, in in, in all respects uh, in uh, in our city, except for um, the federal enclaves or the federal facilities, where for the most part, they have their own police departments. Uh, The US Capitol Police has its own police department. Uh, The Secret Service is responsible for the White House. The National um, Park Service has its police force, the United States Park Police, uh, Postal Police, ATF, FBI, (laughs) you name it. They're all these uh, various um, police departments. Uh, Another thing that um, was on display was that our, our National Guard, Uh, is not really, it's called the DC National Guard, but it's not actually our National Guard. They report through the Secretary of the Army to the President of the United States. So all of these things are um, coming together uh, to to have a big problem. And at at the end of the day, as mayor, uh, and as an American, I saw people storming the Capitol. Um, And even though I don't really have the authority to order the D.C. National Guard to the steps of the United States Capitol, uh, it was my job to make sure that that happened. Um, And over a series of conversations that have been much reported, um, that that is what uh, I tried to do. Uh, And after the events, uh, there are a short period of time between January 6th and the inauguration. Uh, all mayors know this, we have the things that we have the real power to do uh, and, we ha- and we use our convening power and, uh, to, to get everything else done. Uh, and that's what I did to make sure that the, 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 legis- the federal, the executive and the legislative branch um, were, were talking and, and were um, in lockstep for, for these events, the National Park Service doing uh, what it needed to do and the like. Uh, the other thing that I, I find interesting and we all should be concerned about as Americans, and we've heard this in previous reports, um, but our country is particularly vulnerable uh, during this transition period. Uh, and we hope uh, that we have a, a exiting executive um, that is focused on a smooth transition and focused on keeping us safe. And we have professionals in all of those agency offices that don't bail Uh, at the end, Um, but that's the position that we were in. We had a number of acting directors. We had them uh, agency secretaries um, that were resigning left and right. Uh, I actually had a conversation with the Homeland Security uh, Secretary and where he was uh, communicating some decisions that he was making, responding to my demands. Uh, And 30 minutes later, he resigned uh, and so then we had a new Homeland Security director. So uh, one like, key takeaway that I have from this that is very concerning uh, is that we are particularly vulnerable um, yeah. during that time if we don't have, uh, you know, exiting people. Uh, hopefully we'll never have anybody like Donald Trump, but we could and what type of safeguards is certainly a lesson learned um, for us uh, in the city. So now, Greg, what we're focused on is we need a new, um, we need our country, but certainly us, needs to regard this white extremist movement um, as a very real threat uh, to security in 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 our city and for our federal government.
0: We also heard from Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, President Biden's nominee for Secretary of Labor, Ohio representative Marsha Fudge, President Biden's nominee to serve as secretary for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Brian Deese, director of the National Economic Council, who spoke along with Julie Rodriguez, director of intergovernmental affairs. Last, with all of the crises and turmoil of the day, uh, the conference wanted to close its session by listening to the preeminent voice on compassion, kindness, and love. And that, of course, is the 14th Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso, who shared his critical message to us about how mayors could use their platforms to make their cities more compassionate and kind places.
9: So this is my number one. I fully committed promotion of uh, this, what's the concept of oneness of a human being. And we have to, live together so uh, you see the harmony and in order to uh, contract each other uh, closely we should be honest truthful uh, then trust come. without trust difficult uh, education alone or money, or political power, will not bring trust, trust, home-heartedness.
0: I wish I could share comments from everybody that joined us for the winter meeting, because truly, it was a rare opportunity to hear from our nation's brightest leaders. But I'll end it here with many thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next podcast of The American Breakthrough.